Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung, and welcome to We Have Ways Family Stories. This is a new Sunday series, ideally suited to listeners who enjoy a leisurely morning with a cup of coffee, or perhaps a brisk walk with the dog. We get a huge amount of correspondence from listeners, and we really enjoy reading your questions and observations. And, whisper it quietly, even your occasional corrections. (coughs) But there's nothing better than getting a family story that gives us an insight into the lives of people living through the Second World War. Our plan is to read three or four of these stories each Sunday. Stories of regular folk in Britain and beyond. They don't have to have been involved in momentous events or swum ashore in Sicily. They just need to tell us something about what life was like during the most important six years in history. We hope you enjoy them. This one's from Simon Thompson, and it's entitled Sergeant Tom. Shortly before he died, my mum's partner related to me the following story. Sergeant Tom was in the RESC during the Second World War. He was a driver, not a common skill set in rural East Yorkshire before the war, and upon being drafted into the RESC, he quickly rose up the ranks to sergeant. 
Tom's unit was supporting a tank regiment who were reforming and working up for Normandy in the wilds of the North Yorkshire Moors, and Tom's job was driving scammel fuel trucks. Just before the 6th of June, the armour moved south and Tom and his drivers with them. About the 7th or 8th of June, Tom drove his truck off the landing ship and up the beach and began the long slog to Lüneburg Heath. We are now somewhere in Belgium and the tanks are parked up for the night. It is a very cold, wet, dark and miserable night and a collective sense of humour failure is in progress. An RESC officer finds Tom and tells him to drive said officer and Tom's load of fuel to a destination known only to the officer. Tom is slightly suspicious but the officer is sat in the passenger seat so he can do the talking if the red caps stop them. Where are we going, sir? Just drive, Sergeant. I'll call the turns as we get to them. Tom is not happy. Has he got caught up in some black market fuel racket? His hard-won three stripes start to fade in front of his eyes and a successful military career appears to be heading for Colchester and the glass house. About 30 minutes later, they're driving down the rain-soaked cobbles of some large blacked-out Belgian town. Tom is now very unhappy and is cursing the officer, who just ignores him. Eventually they turn off the street, down a ramp and into an underground garage. Doors slam ominously behind them. Dim lights come on and dark figures appear and start to unload the fuel cans from the scammel. That's it. He's had enough and Tom confronts the officer, who orders him, in no uncertain terms, to do as he is told and keep his trap shut. Tom resolves to tell the military police when they get back. Meanwhile, the truck has been both unloaded and reloaded and they drive back to the tank park. Tom quickly jumps down from the driver's seat and intends legging it to the MPs. Sergeant, come here and look at this, says the officer. To Tom's amazement, the back of the truck is full of beer barrels. I couldn't tell everyone as they tear the place apart, but with the army's approval, we have just exchanged fuel for beer. The brewery intends on restarting and needs fuel for the pumps, so they've given us some stuff they had hidden from the Germans. Merry Christmas, Sergeant. And that's how Sergeant Tom helps liberate a Belgian brewery, surely one of the most heroic actions of the entire war. And this story is from Jack Gus Adamson, uh, and it's about John Chase Jack Wagner, United States Marine Corps. My namesake, my great-uncle John Chase Jack Wagner, was a United States Marine Corps veteran of Iwo Jima. Born in 1913, he grew up learning a life of hard work, fist fights, and heavy drinking. In the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, Jack went to sign up for the service, but was initially turned down by everyone. A steel worker at Bethlehem Steel, he was a giant of a man for that time, standing six feet two inches and 190 pounds, with a deep, raspy voice. Even though he was 38 in 1941, the story goes that age wasn't the reason he was initially rejected. But rather, he was so large, and his voice so deep, that according to the army recruiter, his CO wouldn't get the respect he deserved with a man like Jack in his unit. He was eventually accepted into the United States Marine Corps in 1942 and trained in communications. In February 1945, he was in the third assault wave to hit the beach at Iwo Jima. Jack was there for the entirety of the battle. Sometime later, in a V-mail to his folks, he wrote, I had my first sleep in six nights, and I feel pretty good. This is one of the toughest places of land in the world, but I can say the Marines have the situation well in hand. I haven't a scratch on me. 
you know the devil takes care of his own. A second letter follows sometime later. Just a few more lines to let you know everything is still okay. Only thing is, I'm so darn tired. I don't know whether I'm coming or going. Started to get some sleep last night about six and got into some trouble and wasn't out till 1am. We just got our installations in, so we might get a little rest and the word come through we have to move. We've got it all to do over again. Jack received the bronze star at Iwo Jima. Here's a citation. Leading men of his command under fire to the location of the command post, Technical Sergeant Wagner supervised the installation, operation and maintenance of the Division Wireless System. His tireless efforts and disregard for personal safety served to inspire his men in the performance of their duties. Although he was wounded, having taken mortar shrapnel in his knee, Jack refused evacuation and remained for the entirety of the operation. This wound, however, was severe enough to send him back to hospital in Hawaii and out of the war after the island was declared secure. Jack never smoked much of Iwo Jima, and if he did, it was ever so brief. After the war, he returned to the steel industry and a life of hard work. He married but never had children, although he and my great-aunt did raise my father after his own passed away. Jack was loved and respected by his friends, family and community. In 1995, my great-aunt was in the kitchen and Jack was in the living room watching TV. He was watching a show about the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. My aunt heard a gasp and a glass hit the floor. She rushed into the room to find Jack, still a mountain of a man in his older age, staring at the TV with tears in his eyes and a quiver in his voice. I just saw myself, was all he said. Jack died in 2002 at the age of 89. Okay, now we have something from Matt Wilkins about his grandfather. My grandfather, Frederick John Wilkins, joined the South Lancashire Regiment in 1938 and was with the BEF when it went to France. He fought during the defence of Arras before reaching the coast at Dipan. He was evacuated from Dunkirk on the 1st of June 1940 on the SS Ben an Isle of Man packet steamer. He once described to my father being attacked by a Ju-87 as the ship pulled away and firing his 303 at it from the top deck, to no avail. Upon return to the UK, he applied for transfer to the RAF and was accepted for pilot training. After elementary flight training, he travelled by convoy to Halifax in Canada and was posted to No. 31 Bombing and Gunnery School at Picton, Ontario. He would fly Fairy Battle, Avro Anson and Fairchild Bolingbroke, Canadian-built Bristol Blenheim, helping train air gunners and bomb aimers who would go on to bomber command squadrons. After about 18 months of flying in Canada, he underwent testing for high-altitude operations. I still have the test certificate that states past fit for PR duties. By this time, he was a flight sergeant pilot, and he returned to the UK in 1943 flying Hawker Hurricanes in Wrexham and Northumberland. His parents only lived 15 minutes from Wrexham, and one day he told them he would fly over. His mother stood in the garden waving a tablecloth. He used to tell her that he could have seen her with just a handkerchief. Next, he was posted to an OTU in Palestine and converted to fly the submarine Spitfire PR Mark 7, learning to fly long-range photographic reconnaissance missions over the Middle East. Eventually, he was posted to a frontline squadron in 1944 as a warrant officer pilot. He was with 681 Squadron flying the Spitfire PR Mark 9 in India and Burma for the rest of the war operating from forward-deployed jungle airfields. 
He was trained in escape and evasion by the Gurkhas. I still have his cookery that they gave him and would fly four-hour photography sorties on a regular basis. I have all of the squadron operations books and some of the reports make for hairy reading. Being shot at by anti-aircraft guns whilst photographing railway yards at zero feet or being chased by Japanese fighters while photographing the docks at Rangoon or US P-38 lightnings trying to catch the Spitfire in a climb. It never came close. After the war, my grandfather became an English teacher and never really talked about what he did in the war. I only know because I have his pilot logbook and things like the telegram he sent from Dover to say he'd made it back from Dunkirk. My father always said he never knew about his dad's experiences until one day he was sat at the kitchen table talking about the Spitfire, which he had learnt at school could fly at 300 miles per hour. My grandfather just looked up from his crossword and said, I used to do 400 miles per hour in mine before carrying on as if that was perfectly normal. And this story is from Martin Jaspers. My grandfather was 17 years old when the war started in the Netherlands. When he got called up to work for the Germans, he refused and he hid at a farm near Eindhoven where he lived. Because he still needed to make money... He made little grain mills and sold them to people by going round on his bike. On one of these trips, he was caught and sent to Camp Amersfoort in the Netherlands. He stayed there a couple of weeks, but was then moved to Buchenwald in April 1944. In Buchenwald, he was put to work in the Gustloff factory. He never spoke much about his time in Buchenwald, but the things he did tell were horrifying. One story he told me a couple of years before passing away was about a bombing raid on the Gustloff factory that went completely wrong. The prisoners were warned a raid was incoming, and they were all told to hide in the woods, but instead of hitting the factory, most of the bombs hit the woods, and a lot of prisoners were killed. The Germans would not gather the dead, so the prisoners had to do this. My grandfather told me it took them weeks to gather the bodies and body parts from those woods. After eight months in the camp, he was put forward as a volunteer to work on the steam locomotive. Goods had to be delivered from and to Weimar, which is at the bottom of the hill on which Buchenwald is situated. One day there was another big bombing raid, but this time the target was the Weimar station. The prisoners were there when the bombing started, and their guard ran away to hide. My grandfather, and my later-to-become great-uncle, ran away and walked all the way back to the Netherlands. During their journey home, they were walking along the railroad, when an ammunition train was attacked by an Allied plane. My grandfather had to take cover for several hours before the explosions in the train died down. Finally, they arrived at the border, but were captured by the Dutch. Arriving from Germany, they were not believed when they said they had escaped. They were suspected of being traitors who worked for the Germans and were now leaving the sinking ship. They were locked up in a school, but during the first night managed to escape through a window. They really wanted to go home and didn't want to wait any longer. In April 1945, they finally arrived home. Over the last years, the documentation on prisoners who were kept in Buchenwald has been digitised. It started with people who died in the camp, but more recently, they have added the documents of the survivors. I have found the documents of both my grandfather and great-uncle. To look at these documents was really moving for my mother and me. On one of the documents, it says, Dirk, fein dein Verkung vernichtet, which translates to destroyed by enemy attack. It seems the Germans thought they died in the bombing of the station. 
we have something from Steve Flaunty. Hans Rauter was SS General Chief of Police in the Netherlands and quite likely the most despised German in Holland throughout World War II. He was responsible for the deportation of 110,000 Jews to extermination camps and 300,000 Dutch workers to forced labour camps. He was the chief promoter of terror through summary arrests and internment. It will be 75 years since the Butcher of Holland was ambushed, seriously wounded and confined to a hospital bed that led to his eventual arrest at the end of the war. When researching my wife's family history, which has Dutch roots, we discovered that her grandfather was a senior Dutch police commander during the Second World War and taught criminal code at the infamous Schalha Police Academy, set up by Rauter. All of the Dutch serving in the police were closely scrutinised after the war for any evidence of collaboration with the Nazi occupiers. We uncovered a closed file, these files have tight restrictions even to this day, on my wife's grandfather that was stored in the Dutch National Archives. Amongst the documents were several letters of commendation from former resistance members describing several actions of resistance by her grandfather against the Nazi occupiers. Using his police privilege and uniform to escape detection from the Gestapo, the letters confirmed his loyalty to Dutch society, which he undertook at great risk to himself and his family. The letters described actions such as sheltering Jews escaping the western cities of Holland, keeping an escape car loaded with provisions for use by the resistance in his garage undercover, and transferring downed Allied aircrew to safe houses. Another letter that leads on to the connection with Rauter described how he arranged for the swap and repair of weapons for the resistance via the workers at the Appledorn telephone exchange. On one occasion, it was his own pistol that was required by an Appledorn resistance cell leader, Gert Goosen. Further research unearthed a remarkable link to the ambush on Rauter. Goosen led a maverick resistance cell in the region and in March 1945 set about organising an ambush on a food truck transferring meat from a Dutch abattoir outside of Appledorn to a Luftwaffe crew barracks not far across the border. In the dark of night, they mistook the engine note of Rauter's BMW staff car for the truck, and what followed was a ferocious firefight that left 234 cartridges, mainly British Sten gun rounds, lying around the staff car. The earliest published report of the firefight described the action that unfolded. Geert jumps astride the hood and fires two shots through the windshield with his Volta pistol. The two men in the back now bring their machine guns to the shoulder and click the weapon sharply. Geert changes position where he opens fire at both men. At the same time, he calls out to his men the command, Fire! The reprisals that followed were brutal. 263 Dutch prisoners were rounded up, more than one for each cartridge found, and executed throughout the Netherlands, 117 of them at the site of the ambush. Miss Gerita Verdonk, who worked in the telephone exchange and transferred the weapons, was later awarded a resistance commemorative cross instituted by royal decree in 1980 on the 35th anniversary of the liberation of the Netherlands. Keep up the great podcast. It grows from strength to strength. And this is from Roger Justice, who says, Greetings from the other side of the pond. I have two Second World War connections, my father and my maternal grandfather. My grandfather, whom I was named after, was a second lieutenant in the US 2nd Mechanised Cavalry Group. From July of 44, he commanded a platoon and then became second in command of his company as they raced to Germany, 
mostly with the 3rd Army and 12th Corps. He was one of only two officers in his squadron not to be killed or wounded, and won a Bronze Star. He didn't talk much about the war, but he did tell us that the Red Army shelled him near the end of the fighting. He stayed in the service and retired as a Lieutenant Colonel in the Reserves and ran the family lumber yard in a small Ohio town. My father was in the US Navy, having joined in 1940, aged 18. The story in the family is that after a fight with his Hungarian immigrant mother, he wanted to try and play pro baseball, and she wanted him to get a proper job. He threatened to join the Navy, saying she would never see him again. So she called his bluff and took him to the recruiter the next day. Initially posted to the USS Indianapolis, he heard the famous Air Raid Pearl Harbor over the talker set he was using. He served the rest of the war on the USS Radford, taking part in several actions in the Solomon Islands, including the Battle of Kula Gulf, where the ship won a presidential unit citation. After the ship hit a mine in Manila Bay in early 1945, he was about to go to an advanced AA school when the war ended. He used his GI Bill to get a degree in geology and was an oceanographer for the Department of Defence until he retired. He enjoyed telling stories, some, including the Liberties in Australia, were really entertaining. In 1992, I got to go to his ship's 50th anniversary reunion and dinner. During the dinner, they played an audio interview from NBC Radio with the Radford's former CEO, who'd won the Navy Cross. He was being interviewed with Rita Hayworth, the movie star. The crew, who had never heard the interview before, were incensed and started throwing their dinner rolls at the screen, where some slides were being shown in conjunction with the audio. It turns out they were still in the Solomon Islands fighting and dealing with the heat and bugs and were pissed their CEO was getting awards and meeting Rita Hayworth. Everyone had a good laugh and it was a lot of fun. Well, I don't know about you, but I've loved reading and hearing all of these stories. Thanks to everyone who contributed. If you'd like your family story considered for the show, email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to make the heading family stories in the subject of the email, please. Then we can spot it. You can also send us your story on the Patreon site. It's patreon.com slash wehaveways. There's a tab on the main page titled family stories. Just add yours there. See you all next time and thanks for listening. Bye.